Good to be here. Good to make it. I was. Uh, we had Lord's Supper. I was running a little late, and then the highway it was a very looked like a bad accident and held things up. And then Scott wasn't answering his phone because he was obviously doing stuff. Oh, it's at home. Well, get. We should get pagers back. Cool, you know. Pagers were cool, and then you would do nine one one after uh, if you really wanted them to phone you back. You're probably too young to remember nine one one on the pager, but that's that's the life I lived. Uh, good to see some of you, some uh, old friends back. Arjun, uh, my mom told me you'd be coming. She said I saw this nice young man at church, and she said that she was my mom. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah. She's like, oh, my son's Mark Jones, and then you said you knew me, and. She phoned me about it, that's why. So we are in Revelation chapter 18. We're going to look at the whole chapter today. It's a long one, but the last sermon was only two hours, so I'm hoping to cut it down a little bit. That's normal in some countries, you know, and some Baptist churches. <laughs> Revelation chapter 18, verse 1. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she'll be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in the fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city, Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, and sheep, horses and chariots and slaves, that is, human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud, alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels, 
and with pearls. For in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste. And all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all whose trade is on the sea, stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city, where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth, for in a single hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of the bridegroom and the bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth. And all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints. And of all who have been slain on earth. Well, let us pray that God would be gracious to us and help us to know and understand his word. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and ask that it will be a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our pathway now, not just for one of us, but for all of us, not just unto edification, but unto salvation to the very end that we may see and behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. I was looking at a pastor called Robert Rayburn. He did my ordination ceremony many years ago, uh, just down the road at the Lutheran Church. And he has a sermon series and writes out very nice, eloquent sermons online. And I occasionally go and take a peek and see what he's up to in uh, some of the passages I'm preaching on. And in Revelation chapter 18, I was struck by his opening comments because I found them to be uh, feelings I've had this week as I was preparing. So it was quite something when a uh, pastor has almost the exact same thoughts as, as you do. And uh, he makes the point that uh, he realizes some of the people he is preaching to may be struggling with week after week in the book of Revelation uh, because what you are hearing is judgment, 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 judgment different ways of saying the same thing, and you uh, seem to have no relief from it. And then even today, again, clearly that was not the type of thing you put on a birthday card or find at Hallmark. No, I, I would like to say just by point of uh, uh, application, you know, maybe there's a business for someone here, Revelation 18 inside a birthday card. Just think about it. But he says that very few books have been as taxing upon him personally in terms of preparation and all those things as the book of Revelation. And so he then makes the point, take courage, brothers and sisters, we are nearing the end of the book and the final four chapters, 19 to 22, are both the clearest and the happiest of them all. Now, do you know what happened this morning with these, this rabble in Surrey, as I call them? 
uh, as opposed to the rabble in Vancouver. <laughs> uh, I got accosted after church, and they says, oh, we disagree with you. Uh, we like the judgment. So I'm a bit nervous now, because you might be thinking, no, no, keep preaching that judgment, pastor, we need more of it. I don't know where you are, but I did make this uh, comment to the individual. Well, you do realize I have to preach this twice on a Sunday. I have to prepare all week with judgment. Maybe it's a little harder on me, and I'm imputing this to you. I don't know. But the point is, there has been a lot of judgment. And if God wanted you to be sure of a few things in the book of Revelation, with all of the mysteries, with all of the symbolic language, with all of the the ideas and concepts that are on the surface very difficult to understand. God wants you to be absolutely sure He is going to judge the wicked and He is going to save the righteous. And that is something you simply cannot walk away without being completely aware of as you read through this book. Now, there's two types of responses in this chapter concerning judgment. The first is an angel uh, from heaven that declares uh, very loudly and prophetically that there is a fall, a fall of Babylon, a fall of a great city, a great city that has a historical pedigree as a great city, but fell, but a great city that symbolically is representative of all the godless cities and godless uh, nations and godless kings and rulers of the world. And so you have that here in the first section. Then in the second section, the fall of Babylon is lamented on earth, and what you find is that for all of the luxury, for all of the glory, for all of the things that you can say that they have reached into the heavens with all of their glories, it will ultimately come to nothing. It will be a very sad and final ending because God will judge this city. That's the basic outline of the chapter. Now, in the first few verses, you'll notice that this Angel calls out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. This was actually a quote that comes from Isaiah chapter 21. It happened in the past historically. It is now happening theologically in terms of how we are to understand the world and living under the sun. She has become a dwelling place for demons and unclean spirits. Babylon is going to become an uninhabitable ruin. When you look at all of the outward beauty of Babylon, when you look at all of the outward beauty of the, the riches that this world has to offer, and you strip them away, when you were to look at, let's say, Hollywood or, or wherever it may be, and you look at the outward beauty and you strip it away, what you would be left with are demons. Behind what is going on in this world in its opposition towards Almighty God, you will find that beneath the veneer of what apparently may look tempting to you as a Christian are demons. And this is what happens. In fact, the nations are described as drunk. They are drunk from the wine of the passion of Babylon's sexual immorality. They are drunk upon the immorality that they have committed in terms of idolatry. And drunkenness is a way of describing what happens to people who do not serve the true and living God. Now, some of you may uh, remember, I don't know, but you take your driver's test. The first part is the written. The second part is the actual 
you drive. And it's quite remarkable today, mainly because of social media, but I'm shocked at how many people you know, they go on social media and they're like, got my N, sixth time lucky, you know, but this isn't a big deal. You know, this is just what happens. People fail. They go in first time like, oh, definitely going to fail. So what I might as well get this over with. Mom and dad fork out another however many next time. Well, you know, it wasn't my fault. The tractor came on the road and then a ball flew across and then an old lady was playing golf. Second fail. And you have all these fails. But, you know, sixth time, you I got it. So proud of my son, you know, letting him loose on the road now. But before that's the written part. And, you know, most people manage to scrape by in the written part. But I actually remember the written part because I got a question wrong. Now, you can imagine, uh, that was part and parcel of my life as a kid, getting questions wrong. But this one struck me because it was about the effects of alcohol when you are driving on the road. And what is the first thing that goes when you are over the limit, when you've had too much alcohol? And the answer that I got wrong, the answer was actually your judgment. You are not able to make proper judgments. You cannot make judgments when you are drunk. And when you are drunk upon the world's immorality, you cannot make accurate judgments about what is happening, about reality. So when you look at the world and what they think is true and what they think is right and what they think is acceptable, you are dealing with drunkards, spiritual drunkards who cannot actually process reality the way God is telling us in His Word to process reality. That's how you have to understand this world. You're living in a world where everybody is spiritually drunk. And the key question for us as Christians is, will we remain sober-minded in a world that is trying to intoxicate us every day with its allurements? Now, after this declaration has been made, and we're going to get through this, I hope, fairly quickly, there's going to be a, another voice that comes where Babylon's fall is lamented. And you, you see some of these ideas where uh, there is this obvious destruction coming of Babylon, but then Christians are warned in verse 4, another voice comes from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins. This was said multiple times in the book of Isaiah regarding actual Babylon, that the people of God, even though they would be brought out of exile from where they were in Babylon, that they would not bring Babylon in their hearts with them back into the promised land. And Christians in 2 Corinthians 6, which you read earlier, are commanded likewise to touch no unclean thing, to come out from the world. And this is actually a lot more difficult than we imagine. Because the world isn't lazy in certain respects. Babylon isn't lazy. Babylon is looking, evangelizing. The missionary activity of Babylon is intense. It's fierce. And they are constantly holding out temptations for you each day to drink the wine of her sexual immorality. And even people who profess to be people of God get caught up in this. Lot and his wife is a salient reminder. Lot had to be basically bullied to get out of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then his wife, who was told not to look back, looked back. And Lot even lingered. 
It is not an easy thing to withstand Babylon. But remember that Babylon will be judged. Verse 5, for her sins are heaped as high as heaven and God has remembered her iniquities. We justify sin. We minimize sin. We excuse sin. But when God looks upon sin, He sees it in all of its horrors. He who is of purer eyes than to even look upon iniquity, when He sees a sin, He sees every angle of that sin. He sees every motive behind that sin. He sees every possible consequence of that sin. God sees a sin and He sees it in a way that we will never be able to understand in this life. God sees your sins, and your sins are as high as the heavens. As the grain of the sand is on the seashore, so your sins are. And you don't even know a thousandth part of your sins. You don't. You cannot. It's a frightening thing to think about the sins that we aren't even aware of that we have committed. But God doesn't forget. And He will pay Babylon back. That word there, repay her double for her deeds, probably is better translated equivalent for her deeds. There will be a retributive judgment, not a restorative judgment. Chapter 18 is not about restorative. It's not like chapter 3 where he writes to the church in Laodicea and he tells them to repent and turn, otherwise he will spit them out of his mouth. This isn't a sort of, hey, this is a warning. No, this is a, hey, this is what is going to happen. But they are proud. In fact, you see this in verse 7. She gloried herself and lived in luxury In fact, said, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning or sadness or judgment I shall never see. In fact, one of the signs that Babylon is being judged is that they don't believe they will be judged. That is a very dangerous position to find yourself in in this world where you do not believe that there is a judgment because that already is a form of judgment. So then... As John continues to speak, he speaks of the glories of Babylon, the outward glories of the Babylon in verses 9 to 24. He spares no words in trying to speak about how outwardly appealing this prostitute is. And those who follow the prostitute, the so-called earth dwellers, they have their hopes dashed and heaven rejoices over this. You see in verse 20, rejoice over her because she has been laid waste. And your saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Babylon's pursuits, the world's pursuits, those who are godless, their pursuits, their successes, their enjoyments, they have come to nothing. They have actually lived out the book of Ecclesiastes. You see, verses 9 to 24, it is a summary of what Solomon says in the book of Ecclesiastes. You can have it all, it will come to nothing. As I was driving on boundary, actually, I stopped at a red light, usually a good idea. Unless you're in South Africa, then you need to make a decision. But, beside me, pulled up the most beautiful Rolls Royce. I mean, this wasn't even one of those old ones. This was like 
I mean, it was nice. And I had to have a little look. Uh, and I just thought, wow. And I saw a gentleman sitting there. And since I'm a bit, bit sensitive right now to Revelation chapter 18, I just thought, well, I've got my daughter with me. She doesn't know I was thinking that. She'll probably be embarrassed. I thought, I got my daughter. He's all alone in that car. I know maybe he's got a daughter. Maybe he's really happy. But I just thought, I've got a human with me. And I'm happy. And I'll be honest, I did beat him off the line. <laughs> but Rolls Royces aren't the types that go fast off the line. You kind of want to go slow and let everyone see you. So I, I think it was a false race, to be honest. But I thought, I've got about 10 Rolls Royces right beside me, maybe nine actually. But I don't know if that gentleman was off to church. I don't know where he was off to. But I do know that those glories, those temptations are going to come to absolutely nothing. And in fact, this fall is exemplified in verses 21 to 24 where the angel takes a stone like a great millstone, remember Christ's language here, and threw it into the sea, saying, so will Babylon the great city be thrown down with violence and be found no more. And all of these people who had so many apparent successes in the world are going to be found no more. In fact, a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. Now, this would have been very powerful in the first century because there were Christians who were craftsmen. And because being part of a trade guild meant you had to give honor to the emperor, a lot of Christians lost their jobs because they would not bow the knee to Caesar. So what's being said here isn't just a sort of let's run through all of the trades of the world and all of the things that go on, musicians, athletes, craftsmen, whatever. No, in actual fact, those Christians who may have lost will ultimately win. And those who have gained by bowing the knee to Caesar will ultimately lose. Because in these wicked people is found the blood of prophets and saints, in verse 24, and of all who have been slain on earth. The point is, it's irremediable. There's no turning back. When this judgment happens, it is definitive. Now, I do want to look at a few points of application in light of chapter 18 in terms of how Christians are to live in this world. Now, you are to live in this world. Christ prays that we would not be taken out of the world, but that we would live in the world, but be not of the world and be protected from the evil one by his truth in John 17. But how do we live in this world? Well, the first thing to understand is that we have to be actually different than the world. That's clear. You see here, there's a very explicit denunciation of Babylon. So you shouldn't be part of the people who are going to be included in this judgment. Now, in the first century, when Christians were persecuted to the point of death, this was very obvious. In fact, a scholar of the New Testament, Karen Job's, makes this point, and it struck me this week as I was reading it. She said, pagans of the first century viewed Christians as very fine people that were a great blessing to society. Come on. Pagans of the first century viewed Christians as killjoys who lived gloomy lives devoid of pleasure. 
The pleasures from which Christians of the first century typically abstained were the popular Roman entertainments, the theater, the risque performances that were sexually alluring, the chariot races, the gladiatorial fights with their blood and gore. Christian lifestyle also condemned the pleasures of an indulgent temper or sex outside of marriage, drinking, slander, lying, covetousness, and theft. And when they refused to burn incense to the emperor, Christians actually earned the reputation of being haters of humanity and traitors to their nation, the Roman way of life. Now, let me just say something. I understand, and the Bible understands, and the New Testament understands, that when you suffer, you should not suffer as a murderer or a thief, as a meddler. Christians can bring disrepute to the gospel by doing stupid, illegal things. Can we grant that and just put it on the side there for a second? I'm not taking it away. It's right there. I believe it. However, on the other hand... We need to get rid of this idea that living the Christian life is always going to be winsome and that the world is going to understand us and the world's going to appreciate us and think, yes, I can see why they are like that. No, the world at times is going to think you are a hater of humanity because of what you hold to and what you believe. The world is going to think that you may as well be a murderer because of what you believe about whether a woman has the right to choose or not. The world is going to think that you're crazy because of what you believe concerning sexuality. The world should, on some level, think of Christians as haters of humanity because they're drunk. But if the world is always impressed with you, and if the world always understands you, and if the world always thinks that you're a reasonable person full of winsomeness, and maybe... You're their friend. That was always the issue with the church. The church was most powerful when the church was most different from the world because it actually gave people, ironically, a reason to then be in the church. And as the church was so worldly and took on worldly measures and forms of entertainment and started denying the gospel and the truth, people in the world who were in the church started going, well, what's the point? The point is, how do Christians then live in this world? And I want to just say, you shouldn't overestimate what you are capable of doing in this world, but you shouldn't underestimate what you are capable of doing. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, in 2 Corinthians 6, we were told, as you read earlier, We are to come out from Babylon, so to speak. We are to come out of her. We are not to be those who are worldly. But what does that look like? And it's interesting to me, what it looks like is probably different than what we might expect it to look like. So Paul writes to the Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he tells the Thessalonians, you are to love one another as you have been doing. And then he says after that, and do this more and more. So love one another... And do this more and more. Pretty basic so far. Now, I'm saving you reading a book on the Christian life right now. If you just listen for two minutes carefully, you can save yourself a lot of time. And what? After you are to love one another more and more, what are you to do? And to aspire to live quietly. And to mind your own affairs. 
and to work with your hands. There you go. How does that strike you as a good Christian life? Live a quiet life. Mind your own business and go to work so that you may walk properly before outsiders. How are you going to be evangelistic? By having a pastor tell you each week, if you haven't brought three people to church or if you haven't shared the gospel with 15 people, can you call yourself a Christian? Some of you I don't want evangelizing, to be honest. In the way that you know what I'm talking about. I don't think you've got the gift. It's a special gift, knowing how to talk to people. But let me make no mistakes. I want all of you to lead a quiet life and to work and to mind your own affairs and to not give unnecessary stumbling blocks. You just need to be someone who loves people and loves the Lord. And we are told to pray, to make supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings for all people, even for kings and those who are in high positions. Why? What is the reason that Paul gives for why we should pray for our rulers and all people? So that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Paul doesn't really command all of you to be evangelists, but he does command you to love people and to lead a quiet life. Now that's something. You know, uh, there's a tennis player, Boris Becker, former tennis player. I I like Boris Becker because he was a redhead and he flew all over the court. He won Wimbledon as a young man three times. And I loved Wimbledon because it was the time when my mom would take me to this local grocery store, I still remember, and she would buy me a donut. And it was, I always went for the apple fritters because they were the biggest of the donuts. And I just wanted to get the best bang for my mom's 33 cents. It was 33 cents. And I loved coming home and placing that donut on the table before Wimbledon was about to start and watch it with my mom, the final. It was like a bit of a tradition we did. And, you know, it struck me. Kids have no appreciation of that anymore. You know, they go through Tim Hortons every other day. There's Timbits after soccer games, basketball games, baseball games. Moms come. Kids are playing sports and they bring donuts and Timbits. I mean, it's totally wrong. Trying to train athletes, you're, you're killing my team. But I digress on that. I may come back to it, though. And I love watching Boris Becker. And he amassed considerable wealth, 50 to 100 million pounds in wealth, a star. He had a problem with ladies, as tends to happen with fame and fortune. He had a problem with money. He ends up going bankrupt. He ends up in his bankruptcy hiding assets that he didn't want to then declare because he owed so much money, which typically happens when people go bankrupt. They start to try and hide anything they have remaining. And then he goes on trial because of fraud. And so a few days ago, finds himself guilty and sentenced to two and a half years in prison And you can look at the Daily Mail and you can see some of the houses that he used to own. And then you can look at the cell in which he now has to spend two and a half years. 
He is a visible living picture of Revelation 18. All of the glory, all of the splendor, all of the fame, it will come to a jail cell. And a jail cell will actually be good compared to what this haunt of jackals and unclean birds and demons is going to be for the wicked. And you know what the judge said? It was most remarkable what the judge said to Boris Becker. While I accept your humiliation as part of the proceedings, there has been no humility. While I accept that you have been humiliated in all of this, there has been no humility. Even when he knows he's wrong, even when he knows he's a thief, even when he knows that he goes off in a restaurant and literally impregnates a woman who eight months later comes back and says, I've got your child, and you can go on and on with the sordid tale of this man's life, there has been no humility. And now he is paying what is a small price in this life. Now I pray that in that jail cell where he has to share a bathroom with 60 other Uh, inmates, that he will come to know the Lord. But in this trial, there was no humility. And his sins have been heaped up. And the amazing thing for Boris Becker and the amazing thing for you and me is that but for the grace of God, there go I into that jail cell. But for the grace of God, you could be the one in that jail cell. But for the grace of God, And he can be in that jail cell and he can actually be happier than he's ever been out of that jail cell if his sins are forgiven. He can look at the Rolls Royce beside him out of the window and be happier if his sins are forgiven. And that's the glory of the gospel is that it doesn't matter If your sins are forgiven, you can be happier than anyone and everyone in Babylon because your sins are forgiven. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for the warning of what will inevitably happen. And let us not pretend it will not. And just as many are drunk and intoxicated with the trappings of this world, we pray that we will come out from that, touch no unclean thing, And we will remember what it is to be accounted by the world as lunatics and haters of humanity because they cannot make a right judgment about what is true. But we pray that we may be sober-minded, full of love, and able to lead a quiet and peaceable life in Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.